everyone, and welcome to today's episode of our 7 Investing Podcast. My name is Simon Erickson. I'm 7 Investing's founder and CEO. When it comes to investing, we tend to have a home court bias. We're simply more familiar with the companies and the leadership teams of those that live and operate in our home country. But is this causing us to miss out on international opportunities? Well, I have two guests joining me for today's program who have a very highly informed international perspective. My first guest is Andrea Agarwal, who's lived and worked and run businesses on three different continents, sharing her perspective on an American tech company that has ambitions of expanding overseas. My second guest is Zach Thapar. He's a student at the University of Notre Dame, who's highly tuned in to government regulations and foreign policy and how that impacts companies that are expanding or operating around the globe. So with that in mind, let's dive into international investing and see what our guests have to say about this investing topic. Okay, welcome back, everyone. My very first guest today on our international investing podcast is Andrea Agarwal. Uh, Andrea is joining me from Paris, France this evening. Andrea, bonjour, and welcome to the 7 Investing Podcast. Bonjour, Simon. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. I'm so excited to hear your perspective because I know that you've not only lived, but also done business on three different continents. Uh, Before we get started and talking about companies specifically, can you give me a little bit about your background and how investing has played a key part of that through the entire journey? Sure. Well, I've had a bit of a windy path. Um, I grew up in a small town in England, but I always longed for the big city and had wanderlust. And uh, I did my degree in mathematics at Leeds University there and wasn't quite sure what to do with that. Wasn't quite ready to settle into a job. And um, I got a scholarship at the University of Champaign-Urbana in Illinois. And so I went there to grad school for a year, loved America, um, went to San Francisco for a couple of months, which turned into 12 years. Um, <laughs> and uh, while I was there, I pursued another interest of mine, which was psychology. And I did my master's in social psychology. I was focused on attitudes, behaviors, behavior change, why we think the things that we do. Um, and I got into behavioral research there. Um, I was actually working with AIDS prevention and that kind of thing. Um, But because it was the end of the 90s, I I think I could have quite easily gone a different direction and gone the whole kind of social dilemma kind of way. But uh, um, I didn't. I did something that was good for the world instead. Um, But then I went scuba diving and absolutely fell in love with that. And so that took me on to the next uh, stage of my life. I went to Thailand, lived there for a year, did all my professional training, and came back to San Francisco. And at the beginning of the 2000s was was teaching all the uh, dot-com people how to dive there. I had my own business um, in San Francisco there. Um, And it was interesting because I leveraged the internet to get my customers in a way that the bricks and mortar dive dive stores that weren't doing at the time so I did I did pretty well um uh, uh, they all had their websites but they didn't know how to use them really or to, how to reach people so you know I taught myself html made my own website um and uh, was pretty busy um by 2003 which was when I decided it was time to pack up and move to the Philippines um but while I was in San Francisco like um 
many other people there. There was, uh, you know, there was the smell of gold in the air. Um, Silicon Valley was booming. And so that was when I got first got into investing in the year 2000. Uh, of course, we all know what happened after that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got quite badly burnt, um, but not too much because I didn't just throw it all in there. You know, I read books. Um, Peter Lynch, Motley Fool was a great resource for me at the time. It made investing easy for people like me that were, were quite scared about it. Um, and uh, I kind of Put it to the side a little bit while, while diving took over my life um, but it was still there I still had my brokerage I was still playing with it a little bit um, but uh, then I moved to the Philippines and went to this tiny little island called Malapascua for two days to go and dive with thresher sharks and um, ended up staying there it's kind of a theme in my life really um, so that was 17 years ago I opened up a small dive shop there for employees um, fast forward to 2020, 2020 um, and I had uh, 70 employees at the start of the year in a restaurant and a bar as well um, unfortunately, of course, that's all closed now due to COVID and we're not quite sure what's going to happen with it. Um, but about three years ago, I decided I'd been um, just fiddling with the investing thing over the years, but um, I needed to do something with, with my savings and I looked at, at getting some money managers, uh, didn't really really feel comfortable paying them big fees that kind of thing and decided to do it myself so I started to look on investing as a second job uh, and I've spent a lot of time over the last three years um, learning more about it becoming more involved honing my skills um, and since Covid have gone like pretty much full time into it so uh, it's kind of my new passion I think um, so, so that's where we are now. I think I've got a, a great background, you know, the mathematics, the psychology, um, having run a business in a, a, a very challenging environment, a challenging country for 17 years. Um, so it's all come together to give me some great perspectives, I think, on, on investing and, um, uh, and a, a different way of looking at it. Yeah, absolutely, Andrea. I love your story so much. I love that you've seen everything from Silicon Valley to the sharks out there in Indonesia and the Philippines. Uh, let's let's talk about one company in specific for for today's show, which is Facebook. And I wanted to touch on this one because in in the United States, at least, we we tend to think of Facebook as a social network. You know, this is where you can go and like your friends and put up pictures of your babies doing ridiculous baby things. But internationally, you know, Facebook for a lot of countries, especially developing economies, is actually the internet itself for a lot of people. Can you give us some perspective on, on what Facebook kind of looks like in different parts of the world? Yeah, well, um, in 2014, Facebook ro rolled out a program called Facebook Basics. Um, and it's for developing countries and it allows access to the internet um, for no charge, which is pretty amazing um but there are some drawbacks to that so it has a very walled garden um it allows you need a, you need a facebook account to sign into it 
Um, and then you have some other services there. You've got BBC News, you've got the weather, but it's AccuWeather. So it's not necessarily great for, for remote locations on the other side of the world. It's got baby advice from Johnson Johnson. Um, it's got Bing search. Um, but in order to click on any of the links when you do a search, you actually have to um, buy additional data. Um, but of course, you have access to Facebook as well. Um, so in some of these countries, um, you, you know, in the Philippines, for instance, where I am, Facebook um, among in Internet users, almost 100 percent of Internet users have a Facebook account there. And the vast majority of the population can only access the Internet through Facebook. They do think of Facebook as the Internet. That's very interesting because, you know, the metrics we kind of look at for investors is so heavily focused on advertising. You know, what's the average revenue per user that Facebook's getting in the United States and its most developed markets? Uh, but then it's got a very different business model, as you mentioned, internationally. I know another story you, were, you, were, you and I were mentioning a little earlier was uh, in Africa. They're laying down, what is it, fiber optic cable in, in Africa to get people connected over there? Yeah, yeah. So they have been um, just installing on land thousands of kilometers of, of fiber cable. Um, but they've actually just this year started, um, uh, uh, they're building a huge... Um, a huge cable around the whole of Africa. It's 23,000 miles underwater. Um, and it actually goes through the Mediterranean and the Red Sea as well. It connects Italy, the UK, um, France, um, as well as African countries. Um, so it's a huge project, yeah. And do you think that, that other countries, at least the ones that you've lived in and, and been a part of, do they see Facebook as a social network as well? Or is it more geared for small businesses that are looking to build business pages, um, connect people to the internet or do other things? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I mean, COVID really, um, really brought this out for me. I was living in the Philippines at the time um, in, the, in Cebu, which is the second biggest city. And there was just an explosion after everything shut down on Facebook. Um, I was really quite scared at the time um, that supply lines would get cut off. You know, the Philippines is 7,000 islands um, and uh, um, they have disasters quite often. They have typhoons quite often and the world comes in to help. But when the world is also um, un in distress what what's going to happen then so yeah yeah i was afraid that i wouldn't be able to get any food um and basic supplies but um all of a sudden you've got these facebook groups with local farmers posting that and they would deliver um you know i was getting my milk from one person i was getting my mushrooms from someone else uh, it was it was just incredible uh, and it wouldn't have been possible without Facebook. It was how everybody was managing. So people were still able to sell their produce. Uh, um, people were able to buy it uh, and intermediaries were able to connect with each other to to get them delivered to people. So it, it saved us really in the Philippines and many other countries like us, I'm sure. Yeah, that's very interesting. It sounds like it's it's very local and it's very embedded with just how business is done in a lot of different countries. Mm -hmm. um, it, we know that Mark Zuckerberg plays the long-term game. Uh, he's investing for Facebook's future. He's not afraid to spend a lot of money on acquisitions uh, to, to accomplish those long-term goals that he has. One other one that I'd like to talk to you about is WhatsApp, because we know that WhatsApp was a huge acquisition, you know, small team that he acquired, 
paid over $20 billion when everything was all considered uh, for this acquisition. And WhatsApp, you know, in the United States um, was definitely not a dominant player. Uh, there were plenty of options for, for sending money around here in the United States. But how important is WhatsApp in different parts of the world? Um, well, for me personally, it's the social um, platform that I use the most. Um, I think it's brilliant. It's simple, very easy to use, very clean. Um, you can send messages, photos, videos, voice recordings, which is something that I'm just starting to really get into. It's so handy. Um, locations, you can send documents as well. It's very easy to find previous media and links. They keep that all separate. Um, you can use it on your desktop as well. You can do calls, video calls, video calls with, with different uh, numbers of people um, and it's fully encrypted which is the thing that people like about it a lot um, and uh, there's no ads and there's no plans to have any ads it's free um, so Facebook paid this huge amount of money for it and they're not making any money out of it at the moment so I'm presuming that they are planning to do so in the future but their, their, their plans right now they, they definitely look like they're stepping up to it it seems like they have some momentum behind it. You know, we always kind of look at Facebook and in the results, there's a bar chart that shows all the money they made from advertising and then this small bar at the top that shows payments and gaming and others. But it does seem like they're getting some momentum. They definitely, if I hear you correctly, have got a user base that's highly engaged with that and is using um, those other services that Facebook has. Yeah, and um, I know that in, in the US, it's somewhere 10 to 20% of people use WhatsApp, but... Everybody I know uses WhatsApp. I am on it all day. I have all kinds of uh, connections through WhatsApp. Um, I have for work, I have with my management team, I have different groups of different people in my management team. Um, I have my family, my immediate family, I have a group with them and my extended family, I have a group. Um, my father's from India and, and there's a large extended family there. And so we have one big group for everybody and it's going all day, notifications um, and, you know, it's the elderly people actually on, in that group, the like over 70s, over 80s, they actually seem to be posting the most. Um, we also have a, a separate group for our cousins so that we can chit chat without know, the oldies hearing us, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, and I have, uh, I, I have one from my vacation in the summer where, when I went away with friends. I have one for my Christmas dinner for people that are coming around any event. There's always a WhatsApp group now. Um, some countries have 90% penetration. Um, it's huge. Um, the British government they have WhatsApp groups, you know, every time there's a scandal, there's always a WhatsApp group involved. Um, so it, it's all over the place outside of America. And I just don't think this is realized um, within America and maybe within the investing community as well. Yeah, and it's it's smaller yeah, groups, it's, it's segmenting smaller people groups, with uh, people similar interests uh, for payments, for business, for whatever it might be, and wherever they're around the world, that might be too, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, well, that's all coming, I think. That's on the way. Uh, one other thing about Facebook is uh, in, in the United States here, we, we've seen them kind of controversially. Uh, a lot of times Mark Zuckerberg is testifying before Congress. Right now there's kind of uh, some narrative around Facebook being a monopoly and where there needs to be more regulations on Facebook to limit their power uh, because it might be anti-competitive. Do you see any of that internationally? Is that same narrative true in the other places that you've lived or is that just a United States thing? Um, 
Well, I, I, I mean, this, uh, uh, this um, uh, Facebook basics, uh, this has been said to be the colonialization of the internet. So um, when that is the only way that people can access the internet, what, what do you do about that? Is, is it a good thing to bring the internet to people that, that don't have it? Um, or or is, 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 it, is it bad? Is it, is it something that, that shouldn't be allowed? I mean, India, for instance, wouldn't allow fa uh, Facebook to come in and do that program. Um, they just flat out refused it um, because, because they said it, it, it was against net neutrality. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's really interesting to see Facebook kind of leveraging that core platform, adding the optionality and, and expanding internationally. I uh, appreciate the perspectives on Facebook, Andrea. Let, let's talk about a couple other co companies that you're really interested in too. Uh, outside of just Facebook, you've seen so much out there, lived on multiple different continents. Could you spot me up with one other company or even two companies that, that are on your radar right now that maybe we should be paying more attention to as investors? Sure. Well, um. Oh, one little favourite of mine is a, a company called um, Razer, who are based in Singapore. Um, they're the leading gaming hardware maker in the world, so uh, a lot of listeners may have heard of this. Um, but they're not really talked about as a stock. Um, they, uh, they are led by a very, very passionate CEO. Um, he, he, he was a gamer himself. And in fact, the tagline for, the, for Razer is uh, for gamers, by gamers. Um, and uh, I, I became interested because I have a very good friend who lives in Singapore um, who, who, who works for them. And uh, about maybe four years ago, I, I went out with him in Singapore and, and a group of his co-workers uh, and they... They were passionate as well. They love their CEO. Um, they love their jobs. They love their products and they love gaming. Um, and then about a year later, just in my daily reading, I came across Razor as a company and I didn't realize that they were a public company. So I looked into this some more and I, I, I liked them so much. I invested in them. Um, and they, had, they didn't do very well um, until this year, but uh, this year, they, they, so far, they've, uh, their stock price has about doubled. Um, their market cap's about three billion. Um, their price to sales is, is about three. Um, so it's a little bit more reasonable than other, um, other gaming companies like Activision or, or EA. Um, and, uh, and they've got 25% year on year growth. Um, but they're also now they're going into fintech um, and esports, and so these are higher margin um, uh, avenues that uh, will hopefully um, increase their profit and their gross margins uh, over the coming years. Um, they were actually up for one of the banking licenses um, that, that Singapore just issued, um, that uh, but unfortunately lost it to C Limited. Um, but that's another great company out of Singapore that people have probably heard a bit more of. Um, but yeah, I just love them. I love the passion around them and their customers are so passionate as well. If you look at their Twitter feed, people just love their products. So, um, so I love their company. <laughs> yeah. And when we, when we say gaming hardware, are we talking about headsets? Are we talking virtual reality? I mean, how is this industry moving these days? Yeah, so um, they, they've just got a lot of peripherals, the mice, the keyboards, um, they do chairs, they've got laptops, they, they, tried, they tried phones, but I don't think that worked out quite so well. Um, 
Um, but they're just really sexy products as well. <laughs> and they've got really cool names, like they're named after, after deadly creatures like um, Black Widow, Death Adder, Viper, Hammerhead, that kind of thing. Um, so they've got a really strong call factor as well. <laughs> I can see the connection also to the shark diving on a couple of those hammerhead yes, products. Yes. <laughs> What's another one that's on your radar there, Andrea? Um, so I, I also really, really like the, the fintech um, sector overseas. Um, Afterpay uh, is an Australian company that's starting to come on the radar um, of, of a few uh, of a few investors in the US as well, and they are now available on the US, one of the US exchanges. Um, but they do a buy now, pay later model, um, which has been very, very successful. Um, and, they, and they do it really well. They, they have caps on what people can buy. Um, and so it stops people overspending and they're aiming it at millennials. So, um, you know, the kind of people that, that can't get credit cards, maybe, or just don't have the credit history to do this. Um, so if you want to go and buy a pair of sneakers, for instance, you go into the shop, it gives you immediate approval, you pay a quarter then, you pay a quarter two weeks later, then two weeks later, and the final payment two weeks after that. And if you don't make the payment, you've got a flat fee, a low fee um, that you pay, um, and that adds up a little bit, but then it's capped, um, and you just can't buy anything else until you've paid that off. So, um, you know, they get returning customers. If somebody gets in a little bit of financial trouble, they can just put it off for a while. And then when they pay it, they go back. Um, and there are some companies doing this in the US um, now, but they're not quite so nice about it. You know, they're a little bit stricter. They do credit checks, for instance, um, which then completely takes out, you know, the millennials that can't get credit. Um, but Afterpay have just started moving into the US and the UK, and they've got triple digit growth there. So, you, you know, I think it's a very, very exciting up and coming company. Yeah, sounds like it removes a lot of the friction, makes it easy, as easy as possible for people to be paying things using their technology. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Yeah, great. And my last question for you, Andrea, is um, most of us haven't had the opportunity to uh, live on multiple continents and go diving with sharks and have 70 employees in the, in the Philippines. I definitely love to hear your perspective on what it's like internationally. But my question would be, uh, you know, for, for people that do want to invest internationally, outside of the markets that, that we live in and we're familiar with, what would be some advice you would give to people if they do want to start dabbling in buying foreign stocks? Are there, are there resources or things that people should be considering before they jump into the deep end and start buying international companies? Or what would you, what would advice would you give to somebody who wants to invest internationally? Um, sure. Well, um, it's probably easier than you might think. Um, quite a lot of U.S. brokers offer international stocks. Um, one of my brokers is um, interactive brokers, and I think they're available in most countries, actually, but they have a huge array uh, of international stocks. Um, I mean, you do need to be more careful with them. They don't have often ha don't have um, such big reporting requirements. Um, uh, some people may be familiar with what happened with Looking Coffee recently, a Chinese company. Um, and of course, there's all, all this problem going on with uh, the moment with Chinese companies and are they going to be delisted and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, there's, that's no reason not to look at some, somewhat, someone from maybe the UK or Australia, um, uh, you, you know, something like that. And, and you can... Um, 
you, you can keep it within your field of knowledge as well somewhat. Um, uh, an example I have of that is sports betting, which has been made, made legal in the US um, since 2018, going state by state. Um, you, you know, there's no reason just to look at DraftKings. Um, there is a great UK company that I really like called Flutter, um, an Australian company called PointsBet. Um, uh, and, you know, they, those are countries that have stricter reporting requirements and, and, um, and uh, can be a good way to get invested internationally. Sure, Andrea. Before I let you go, I've got to ask, what is it like diving with Thresher Sharks? <laughs> um, it is amazing. It, it's just, I, I've done several hundred dives with Thresher Sharks and I never get bored with it. They're just so majestic. They're just very beautiful creatures. They're very long. Half of their body is, is this swishy tail that they, they move around like this so gracefully. Um, and uh, yeah, can't get enough of that. <laughs> well, it sounds amazing. Uh, once again, Andrea Agarwal, uh, you know, joining us from Paris, but really has seen so many different perspectives across uh, several different continents. Andrea, I really appreciate you sharing those here with Seven Investing today. Great to be here. Thank you, Simon. And stay tuned for even more on our podcast on international investing. Okay, welcome back, everyone, to our second section on investing internationally on today's podcast. And now I'm joined by Zach Thapar. Uh, he has got a very unique perspective and is also very interested in investing overseas as well. Zach, thanks very much for joining me here with 7investing. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We'll be looking a little bit closer at some uh, different regions of the globe to invest in and some specific companies, but could you kick start this off by talking a little bit about your background and why you find it intriguing to do investing internationally. Yeah, definitely. So I am a um, junior at the University of Notre Dame right now, um, and I study uh, foreign policy, international development, and social entrepreneurship basically there. So really looking at business development in developing countries across the world and how you know the role of international business can affect development, life, and what important factors that brings. And so since I was probably 14, I've been really interested in investing, um, read a couple books and just started buying some stocks and following along with them. Um, and as time has gone on, my level of depth and that I've looked at stocks and my research and what I've actually looked for has progressed. But um, because of my interest in foreign policy, I've kind of always been drawn to international investments and seeing them as a great opportunity to diversify my portfolio and find some really exciting companies across the world. Um, and so over the last few years, I've really started to look outside of just the US and look to Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, and so on for some good investing opportunities. And I think there are some really good opportunities across the world that investors should be aware of. That is incredible that you started investing when you were 14, and I love the program that you're a part of right now. Sounds like some great exposure. Um, let's talk about Latin America first. You know, one thing that I think we tend to overgeneralize as investors is that there's going to be analogs between every region of the world, right? We're going to say, oh, this company is the, the Amazon of Latin America. This company is the, the Facebook of China, but it doesn't really work that way, right, Zach? I mean, are right. there cultural differences in different regions of the globe that govern how different companies are going to operate? Well, yes, I think there's cultural differences as well as there's just logistical differences. I mean, if you're looking at different regions of the world, sometimes just the infrastructure won't support 
using the same model as a company like Amazon. Um, sometimes there's, you know, people don't trust uh, online payments enough to go straight to e-commerce like people do in the US or don't have banks, you know, they keep their, their money at home. So it really depends on the culture, how companies are going to operate. And yes, companies can operate under an e-commerce model, for example, like Amazon. And a lot of successful e-commerce companies across the globe have actually attempted to copy parts of Amazon's model because they've been so successful. But I think there are you know, significant cultural differences in all regions of the world that makes it very hard to just draw a comparison to Amazon. Um, and I think at the same time, that uh, comparison can be a bit dangerous because then you're expecting that same level of return in that same time frame, expecting that same market opportunity, um, same business leadership, um, et cetera. And you don't always have that. Um, and so that doesn't mean that companies that are you know, using a similar model can't be as successful as Amazon as time goes on. But to just call a company, you know, the Amazon of this region or the, you know, square of this region or whatever you want to call it, I think doesn't do justice to the cultural challenges that may exist. Do you think that's an advantage then for the regional companies that are in different regions? So our regional companies in different regions, the companies that are, that are operating in different regions that, you know, we, we have Amazon in the United States. We've seen that be successful here, but does that make it more challenging for these large American-based tech companies to compete overseas? Yeah, so I think there's actually two components that really benefit homegrown companies in foreign countries. I think the first is that, you know, they're going to have that sense of cultural familiarity. They're going to know the ins and outs of the culture. And a lot of the founders of these companies have grown up in the region or the country of the company they're founding. So, you know, live there for years. The founding team is made up of people from that country um, they're going to be able to operate within that culture and change the model to best fit um, what's going to help them find success within that culture, within that country. Um, and then I think the second advantage is just as here in America, um, people are you know reluctant to buy from Chinese companies or at the very least would choose to buy from an American company more often than not over a Chinese company. I think the same can be said in other parts of the world about Chinese companies and American companies. And foreign companies generally. I think people prefer to buy things from homegrown companies and all things being equal, they're going to choose to do so. Um, so if you look at Mercado Libre in Latin America, for example, they have some markets that they've done significantly better than Amazon. And it's not that you know they necessarily have had the experience in e-commerce or in business building even, or that they have more money. It's that you know they're, they have a better sense of the culture and are able to appreciate the challenges of that culture better, um, which in turn leads to people in that country, you know, feeling better buying from them and propelling their stock and their company forward. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned Mercado Libre because they're based in Argentina. But as we know, this company, they're actually doing operations in a whole bunch of different countries in Latin America. Another point that we wanted to, to talk about here was the role of governments and negotiating with governments and how that's a little bit different. Uh, maybe perhaps using Mercado Libre as an example, what, what is that like working with several different governments in different regions of the world? Yeah, so I think for Mercado Libre, I mean, their three largest markets are Brazil, Mexico, and Argentina, but they're operating in, you know, over a dozen countries across Latin America. Um, and I think there is some challenge with that. I think it's dangerous to make an assumption that different governments in Latin America have many, if any, um, similarities. I mean, there's been trends that have been similar across the region over time, but 
the government of Argentina is very different from the government of Brazil is very different from the government of Mexico. And so there's different challenges when you're operating in each country. Um, at the same time, in some of these countries, there's a history of corruption and Brazil, for example, is you know known as one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Um, within the last decade, they've had the biggest corruption scandal in the history of a democracy on earth in their country. Um, and that has really affected trust in government. But at the same time, that scandal came about because of, you know, governments taking bribes from businesses and government leaders, you know, working too closely with businesses profiting from them. So there are unique challenges in terms of corruption. And so if you're going to be a company like Mercado Libre has shown to be thus far, where you're going to be transparent and you know, going to be fair and not take these back channels to the extent possible, then you're going to face a set of challenges in trying to deal with those companies that are. Um, and as an investor looking internationally in a market like Brazil or in Latin America, um, I think that's something you need to be conscious of because, you know, companies can have more success, not because their product is actually better, not because their leadership is actually you know, smarter or fairer or whatever. It could be because they have a close relationship with somebody in the government, um, which could also be the, the case in the U.S., to be fair. But I think that is definitely something that's, you know, important to be knowledgeable about, especially when a company is operating in so many different markets like Mercado Libre is. Yeah, I think that's a good point, especially with tech companies. We, we tend to tell ourselves as investors that they're infinitely scalable, that tech platforms can translate anywhere in the world. A lot of the times, as we've seen with TikTok in the United States and several of the other negotiations with China, that's not always as easy as, as it sounds. Um, you, you mentioned the negotiations with government, which is a great point, you know, the direct handshakes and, you know, how to deal with things like corruption. But there's also indirect impacts uh, that government has kind of a say over as well. Uh, how do you think about inflation or, or interest rates uh, and foreign exchange rates when you're investing internationally? Is this a big challenge for investors as well? Yeah, so I think to an extent it is. I think, you know, currency risk is certainly something to be aware of um, is the value of, you know, the currency of that country changes relative to the United States that could dilute returns for American investors. Um, and at the same time, I think monetary policy and fiscal policy within, you know, countries that have major stocks that people are investing in from America um, is also important. So inflation, for example, I mean, if you look at Latin America, um, Brazil's rate of inflation is, you know, about 3.73% last year, which is about three times that of the U.S., um, but isn't huge. Um, it's definitely, I would be better if it was lower. Um, but, you know, I think you can invest in Brazilian companies without, you know, being worried that a 3% inflation rate or 4% inflation rate is going to destroy the value of your investment. Um, but in contrast, if you look at Argentina, their inflation rate last year was over 50%. Um, and that's definitely something to be concerned about. Um, and so I think when you look at a company like Mercado Libre, again, you know, they operate in all of these markets. And the advantage of that is you have the ability to scale up or scale down within these markets to focus on one more than the other if you're having trouble in one. And you can always come back to a different market later as long as you keep that relationship and continue to operate to some extent. So, for example, as you know, this crisis has played out in Venezuela, um, Mercado Libre has been able to really slow down their operations there, what operations they did have, and focus on Brazil, Mexico, Argentina. Um, and with Argentina's inflation rate, with their economic policy, that's certainly something that 
businesses in that country will hope um, can be solved and can be fixed. But the advantage of, again, being a company like Mercado Libre is you can focus on these markets in Brazil and Mexico. You can focus on expanding into new markets where the inflation rate is lower at, you know, around 3% or so. Um, and, you know, deal with the challenges in Argentina as they come. And so I think, again, yes, that's something that should be researched, that should be looked at. And it would be, I would be concerned if, you know, Brazil and Mexico, both, for example, started seeing significant inflation, started seeing poor monetary policy. Um, but again, because Argentina is just one of Mercado Libre's markets for a company like that, I don't think it's like an at the end all be all that their inflation rate is so high. Sure. It's helpful that they're diversified across a couple right. of different countries. Uh, Zach, you've mentioned Brazil a couple of times. I know a, another company that is uh, on your radar is called Stoneco, which is uh, based and operates out there in Brazil. Can you tell me a little bit about that company, why it's interesting to you? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Stoneco is a Brazilian digital payments and financial technology firm. Um, and they offer a lot of you know, services to small and medium-sized businesses across Brazil. They have three main platforms, essentially. The first is what they call their ABC platform. And that's basically for small businesses that's offering, you know, banking opportunities, um, access to credit, offering them the ability to complete wire transfers and so on. Um, their second platform is what they call their FinTech as a service platform. And that's an online platform providing a range of services to small and large businesses across Brazil including payment processing. And then the third is a full commerce software platform, which is helping companies across Brazil to kind of accelerate their e-commerce and provide software solutions. Um, and so just like some metrics, their total payment volume increased last quarter at 114% year over year, while their revenue grew at 39%. Um, and so Stoneco is a company that I'm really interested in. And my interest in that kind of took off from an actual look in depth at Brazil. So if you look at Brazil, it's the ninth largest economy in the world with a population of about 210 million. Um, but the market currently in the banking sector is controlled by roughly five banks, which control about 80% of the market. Yet a fourth of the Brazilian population doesn't have a bank account. 85% of transactions there are still completed in cash. And Brazilians who do have bank accounts use them sparingly. Um, at the same time, in December of last year, there were 45 million formal economy employees and 21 million employees in the informal economy. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that the informal economy employees, most of them do not have a bank account or access to credit, but a lot of them run small businesses that could very well benefit from banking, from credit, from point of sale solutions like Stenco is offering. Um, and so I think they're offering a really unique disruption to this banking industry that's, you know, elitist and has left out many Brazilians and that many of them aren't satisfied with or don't even use. Um, and at the same time, the regulatory environment in the last few years has changed and has kind of opened up a path for companies to start to disrupt this industry because the central bank and the government of Brazil are seeking to promote fair competition and innovation. Um, and so I think Stoneco is a really interesting company. And I think if you want an example of a company, a homegrown company, really knowing how to use the culture to their advantage and fit within the culture, it is Stoneco. And my reason for saying that is their customer service model is incredible. Um, they operate basically in a bunch of hubs throughout Brazil um, in large cities and small cities. 
where they respond to the needs of their clients. Um, and in contrast to the customer service experiences that you know so many of us have had where you're on the phone for hours and don't get your problem solved, um, 87% of their merchants have their issues resolved on the first call and 90% rate their services excellent. Um, they've been known for helping their merchants, not just with problems with their technology, but with you know any problem with their business. Um, and I think that's really a unique model and a model that wouldn't be possible without that level of cultural understanding, without you know having experience operating in the business world in Brazil. Um, and so Stoneco is a company that I've been very interested in and that I've followed closely um, for a couple months now. Um, and it is one that makes up a fairly large percentage of my portfolio um, because I am so excited about its future. It really is in a great situation, it seems. Like there's not only the macroeconomic factors that you, you talked about, the population and, and, and all of that, and kind of how they're just embracing banking and digital payments, um, but it seems like they also have a lot of government support, which is kind of the topic of, of this conversation. Do you have a thought, Zach, on the reaction from the, the banks uh, to, to Stone Co. and digital payments down there? And maybe I can give a little bit of background. You know, We know that a lot of people in Brazil uh, if you wanted to save money, your only option for years was to put it in a bank account, you know, a low interest paying bank account. And now individuals are getting a lot more options, investing in the stock market, doing different things with digital payments. Do you think this competes against the banks or is this kind of opening up a new market for Stone Co? Um, how, would, how would be the competitive reaction you think that they would face? So I think to some extent they are competing against the banks and Stone Co has focused a lot on providing banking solutions to those Brazilians who are operating businesses or working within the business world. So, you know, they're not the same as a traditional bank in the sense that traditional banks, you know, at the same time are, you know, offering banking solutions to just everyday individuals. Um, I think that, you know, is part of the model and potentially part of the plan for Stone Co, but it's not necessarily their main focus. Um, and I think they are competing with the banks to an extent. We have seen some of these large Brazilian banks start to transition to a more economically, you know, friendly and um, technologically advanced and inclusive model. Um, but I think this is a huge market. It doesn't necessarily have to be a winner take all market. And I think that competition um, is good for Stone Co. And I think the disadvantage these banks have is they've gotten, a, you know, a name for themselves is something that a lot of Brazilians either have been pushed out by or have felt doesn't include them or just don't want to be associated with. And so when you see these newer companies working with people across the country, um, Stone Co., for example, during the COVID pandemic has offered vouchers and a variety of different solutions to help businesses in Brazil stay alive. And I think that's won a lot of people over. And so when you have this new, exciting company that's you know, operating with this great customer service model that's helping its clients get through as challenging a time as this pandemic um, in a country where banks have historically not helped people, I think that is really disruptive. And although those banks may be able to provide some level of competition, I think that it opens up a huge opportunity for Stone Co. to, even if they don't capture, you know, a majority share of the market to have huge success. Makes a lot of sense in a country with 210 million people in it. Uh, Zach, we talked before the program, you said you actually are not investing in any Chinese companies right now. I want to ask you why that is. Is there something about China that stands out right now that maybe is a lot of risk for investors? So I think there's a couple things. And, you know, one for me is I think when it comes to international investing, it's important to do your research and to have some level of familiarity or be able to learn 
about, you know, the culture to an extent that you feel comfortable investing in it. And right now I don't necessarily have that level of experience, um, you know, in Chinese politics and Chinese society that I feel comfortable investing in Chinese stocks. Um, you know, the other reasons are the regulatory environment there. There's, you know, not as strict of accounting standards, which has allowed some companies, Nucking Coffee is an example, to get away with, you know, fraud without the level of pushback or um, necessary transparency that you might see in the U.S. Um, and there's also a history of, you know, the government meddling in the affairs of businesses and um, kind of shaping them or creating laws to shape businesses to their desires. So that's kind of scared me away from China. Um, and the last thing has just been, you know, the sort of trade war, if you want to call it that, with the U.S., um, although it's, you know, not the fault of businesses and although you, businesses could still have huge success with that happening, I think anything that you could, could negatively impact the Chinese economy in a significant way is not great for businesses. Um, so that's not to say that there aren't great Chinese companies or Chinese companies to be excited about. Um, Agora is one I've researched, for example, ticker API, which I think is offering a really exciting solution and it's a really cool company. Um, as well as, you know, there's companies just like Alibaba that have done great and been great over time. But for me, the lack of familiarity coupled with, you know, the sort of regulatory and government risk, um, I prefer to focus on Latin America, you know, Southeast Asia, kind of outside of China and other regions of the world where I'm more comfortable and more, I feel like I'm more knowledgeable. Yeah, so great points there about China, Zach. And, you know, let's look at a different continent now, too. Uh, not Australia. We're not going to go there. And we're not going to go with Antarctica. <laughs> I'm actually going to go to the final frontier out there, Africa. Africa is a developing market with um, a lot of people there. And a lot of companies are really interested in Africa. But again, some considerations, whether it's culturally, whether it's government, whatever it might be, uh, that I think companies should be considering in Africa. Is this one that's on your radar at all as an investor? Yeah, so Africa is a context I've looked to, and there's not, um, to be fair, a ton of opportunities there currently for investors, but I think it's definitely a really exciting continent um, and something that, you know, international investors should definitely be conscious about and research. Um, so Africa, you know, right now has a population of about 1.2 billion people, um, and something that I think is really exciting for investors is that the median age throughout Africa right now is 20. Um and the exciting thing about that is this, you know, younger generation of Africans, they've grown up with, um, you know, more technology. And um, as globalization increases, as the world becomes more internationalized, I think there's going to be some really exciting opportunities for, you know, global corporations to take off in Africa and homegrown African companies to find success in some of the industries we've seen find success in Latin America or the United States, like financial technology, like e-commerce and so on. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I think a lot of uh, countries in Africa have very fast growing economies. Um, some of the fastest growing economies in the world, in fact, are in Africa. Ghana, for example, is growing at 6.5%, as well as the Ivory Coast. Um, and there's, a, you know, a handful of countries growing at three, four, 5%, um, which is really exciting when you couple that with the young population and the increase in technology across Africa um, for a lot of different sectors. So, you know, I think it's, um, as Africa continues to develop, and I believe it is, many African countries are on an exciting path towards 
development, technological advancement. Um, and we've seen some great businesses, you know, founded in Africa over the last decade or so. Um, I think in the next, you know, 10, 20 years, there could be some really exciting opportunities for investors there. Um, that being said, you know, if we go back to what we said at the beginning about, you know, you don't want to compare things to the Square of Africa, the PayPal of Africa, the Amazon of Africa, and so on. I think there are a lot of, you know, risks there that investors need to be conscious of. Um, and I don't think companies, you know, can't navigate those risks. I think they're all things that could be overcome, but they're definitely things that need to be considered. So for example, um, just a lack of infrastructure right now makes it really difficult for a lot of industries to operate. Um, you know, in certain parts of many African countries, there are very poorly built or even no roads. Um, a lot of people don't have addresses in the way that, you know, we do in the U.S. Um, so for companies that are seeking to provide people services at their homes, it's, you know, hard to, you know, build a database or ship things, mail things, whatever. Um, at the same time, there's a lack of trust in online purchases and non-cash purchases, um, very low rates of adoption of credit cards or any sort of digital payments right now, um, which, you know, in a continent of 1.2 billion people, that means that's a massive market and something that's really exciting. But somebody's not just going to be able to come in and offer a, you know, a Venmo or a cash app like solution and see people just pick it up and adopt it because people don't have a, don't have bank accounts and B, just don't feel that level of trust in sending money electronically in any way right now. Um, you know, and at the same time, I think there are, in a lot of countries, there are significant security concerns. Um, if you look at, you know, some of the largest economies in Africa, like Nigeria or Egypt, um, there's exciting population growth, exciting technology growth, but at the same time, there's prominent terrorist groups, there's prominent um, parts of the country that have been, you know, taken over or where, you know, you can't get business done without paying bribes, without dealing with significantly corrupt governments and corrupt figures. Um, and so there's a lot of challenges um, in all parts of Africa. Um, but, you know, if you just look at where a lot of, you know, African countries were 10 years ago and look at them now, you've seen really exciting growth um, and high levels of technological advancement in countries like, you know, Rwanda, like Morocco, um, really Egypt, just across the continent. Um, and I think as, you know, Africa continues to develop, we could see that high level of success that we've seen with some companies in Latin America um, begin to happen in Africa. But I think, you know, patience is important when it comes to investing there because of all of those challenges. You can hardly expect a company to just copy a model of a foreign company and have that same level of success or, you know, even be able to grow at that same rate, no matter what they're offering, because there's just so many things outside of their control that they need to navigate. But I think a lot of these concerns are getting better. And as they do, businesses will be able to find huge success in what is going to prove to be a massive economy with a massive population. Those are all great points. And you can almost feel the tailwinds of the population that just wants to embrace innovation, embrace that technological advancement, like you had said. And it's always important to remember in developing economies, it doesn't have to follow the same trajectory that we did in the United States. You know, They're not going to have to go through dial-up internet and then DSL and then plugging in through ethernets and then to wireless. A lot of times you can leapfrog 
a lot of that. And that can be opportunities for, for companies in the right place at the right time. Uh, Zach, you, you, we, we talked a lot about risks. And I think that maybe to close this out, I'd like to ask a different type of question, which is as international investors, it's a different game than just investing in homegrown companies locally uh, based or, or traded on our exchanges here. You've got different reporting, you've got different risk, you've got these country specific considerations that we have. What are two red flags that would immediately stick out to you if you're investing in a company that's not based in America that just jumps off the page? You say, okay, that's it. I'm out. This is a, this is a deal breaker for me. Yeah. So I guess the first red flag for me, and this is one that wouldn't be more company specific, I guess, but have, would have to deal with the context more broadly is I don't want to invest in companies in a context where there is a significant history of governments meddling in the affairs of successful companies. Um, so one context that comes to mind for me personally is Russia. Um, and my reason for saying that is that, you know, there's a history of leaders of very successful businesses in Russia, you know, going head to head with the government or disagreeing with something the government says, and it leading to the downfall of their business. Um, so Yukos, for example, was one of Russia's biggest and most successful oil companies in the early 2000s. Um, but after the CEO had a falling out with Vladimir Putin in 2003, um, Russian courts basically convicted him on baseless charges, threw him in jail. The government took control of the company, um, took control of its shares, distributed them to you know government leaders, and the company was bankrupt and gone a few years later. Um, and yes, that was 15 years ago. Um, and there are some exciting opportunities in Russia. I'm not saying nobody should invest there, but for me personally, when a company can do everything right and still be destroyed, not by competition, not by even regulation, but just by the egos of government leaders, I think that's a serious concern um, because it's impossible to predict as an investor. And if it happens, you know, there's nothing you can really do about it and it's going to be costly. So looking at the context more broadly, I think that's red flag number one. Um, my second red flag would be, you know, more of a business specific red flag rather than in the culture more broadly. And that would be if there's, you know, fraud, mismanagement or poor guidance on the part of the company's leadership. Um, and, you know, in American companies and foreign companies, we obviously don't want to invest in a uh, company that is known for fraud or that has fraudulent leadership. But I think that um, looking at companies internationally, it's really important um, in terms of my trustworthiness and confidence as a shareholder to have a leader who is driven, who is transparent, um, and a leadership team that you know is experienced and is talking and um, promoting their business in a way that you know I can support and I can get behind. Um, and so, if I see a company that has repeatedly set expectations for themselves and then failed to hit those expectations um, or that has, you know, raised a controversy in its home country because of something it has done that has not sat well with the people of that country. Um, that's something I would be concerned about because again, if you look at the cultural differences, we may see things that happen in America with companies and say, Oh, that's great. Or, you know, that's fine. I can support that as a shareholder. But if you look at those same things happening in a different context, if a company tries to copy those or does that same thing, people in that country might really not like it. And it might get, you know, a lot of negative press or see different problems. Um, so I think when you look to the, the leadership of the company, you need to see a driven, 
team that is not mismanaging, that is not misguiding and not committing fraud, but is, you know, transparent and honest and, you know, can promote a better society as well as a good company. And won't fall into those landmines or the traps that are so common in some of those developing economies. Right. Yeah, well, great. Well, thanks again to, to Zach Papar. Again, give me some great perspectives on Latin America, on Africa, on how it really is operating in, uh, in different countries around the globe. Hey, Zach, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for joining 7 Investing this afternoon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, and I am on Twitter at ZT Investing. Thank you. Z ZT Investing on Twitter. Thanks very much, Zach. And again, thanks for tuning into this show. We learned a lot about in international investing. Um, had a lot of fun with this one. I really appreciate you tuning in. Once again, I'm Simon Erickson, and we are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7 Investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.